0: Welcome to Smart Politics. I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. Joining me is my regular guest and friend, Francine Dash Francine.
1: Hey, hey, still reeling for the re record, but I don't know if we we're going to mention it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> this is no, no, you think I'm not going to mention it? We're going to mention it. We had to record, we recorded like probably 10 minutes, guys. We're re recording. We're re recording. Um, there was mysterious beeping and 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 you know, was there was a, a ghost guy. in the system.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, whether that ghost was literal ghost, UFOs, little green man, or perhaps something more domestic, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not qualified to speak to the technical <laughs> side of recording. I, you know,
1: I'm just a host. Was, it was strange. It was it was a strange. High pitched whistle type of sound you would hear as if you're bleeping, trying to bleep somebody's words out.
0: I'm just a host. I'm merely a servant here to deliver <laughs> news to the people. So I won't do any reckless speculation about Alphabet agencies in our show. That would be reckless and irresponsible of me.
1: Mm. Okay. Wow. No, I would hate. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would hate to
0: engage
1: in that. Right. Because right. No dog whistling. Okay.
0: <laughs> you know, no dog whistling. I'm just saying this is a transition. I'm, I'm just saying.
1: I'm just, I think it's a technological a mystery with our sound system. Sure.
0: You know, like Scooby-Doo gang. It's a mystery. It'll never be solved. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, we're talking about war. Right. Right. So, you know, maybe Mm. someone got a bit upset with us, but
1: we'll let you all decide.
0: We'll let you decide. So, you know, last February, Russia launched a full scale invasion of Ukraine. And in the weeks that followed, it became clear that Ukrainian resistance was stiffer than many had anticipated. And Western countries started scrambling to support their efforts. What followed were a series of financial and military commitments that, from an ethical standpoint, were difficult to argue with. But there were practical questions as well, ones that didn't have clear answers and were never really asked. But with the war well into its second year, now is as good a time as any to look at the current state of the war, where we think it's heading, and to give our opinions on if we think is worth still so supporting, So let's begin. So then the first question is how successful has Ukraine's defense efforts been so far? um last we you, you know i'll'll I'll start off with this, right I, I I think they, you know in the beginning, well in the very beginning they they obviously, Sort of lost a lot of territory very early in the war. They were caught off guard as everybody else was. Right. What then followed was sort of a more dynamic back and forth where they counter pushed. They retook a lot of territory from the beginning. If you'd seen those maps, it would show how much territory they had reclaimed. A lot of that is from this immediate counter push, taking back smaller towns that that frankly Russia hadn't made much of an effort to defend. Um, so that was very successful. And I think a lot of people thought that was the shape of the war. But those of us who had studied this before knew, well, we suspected where this would go, which is where it's gone now, which is that the, the defense efforts, the counterattack efforts have kind of stalled as both sides have dug in, like literally dug trenches and you know, World War Two style trenches. Right. As both sides have laid minefields as they set up artillery batteries. Um, these the dynamic movement has stopped and the front lines have become stagnant to the point where in this counterattack effort, even gaining a mile of territory today is considered a major success, which, again. Is very much the style of World War II, where. Thousands and thousands of people were fighting and dying to gain like one mile, you know. Um, So I would say it was very successful and dynamic in the beginning. It has stagnated as we've gotten to this second year and these things have sort of calcified. Um, What do you have to add to that?
1: Mm -hmm. I, you know, I for me, I have to go back to the. Beginning of. Of. I have to go back to the beginning of what right. we were facing when the, all of this happened. And, and in the beginning, when this all happened, it was, it was really a shock to a lot of people. There was a lot of talk about um, how surprising it was to have two developed countries, two white developed countries, um, especially views from the first world, if you will, going at it and, and being at war to have a first world country at war with a third world country and overtaking them or having bickering between uh, third world countries or countries considered more tribal. That is what the expectation was. But to see Russia and to see Ukraine at war and to see Russia roll in the way that they did was extremely shocking to people. And so people thought one of two things, they people were horrified and obviously hoping that The war would be over quickly um and that it was going to be over quickly one way or the other either by the might of russia or by the righteousness of ukraine's cries for freedom and justice and so you you had this back and forth like you said that, that got us to this point and 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 what we're seeing now is what's playing out is what happens in war you're seeing military strategies we like consider of old at play here. We're seeing strategies yeah. we saw in World War II. Uh, some strategies we saw in Vietnam War, we don't like to bring that up, uh, but we, we're seeing yeah. traditional military strategies when it comes to taking and holding territory. We're seeing yeah. the taking and holding of prisoners and swapping and all the, the dirty work that goes on behind the scenes until one side decides to give up. Yeah. Now, back to your original question as to whether or not Ukraine has been successful so far, for me, it's still going to be tied to understanding what their markers of success are. Yeah. And I think that there are different definitions of success in this space. Um, yeah. Does success mean taking back Crimea? Does it mean accepting what was just taken during this engagement? I don't know. I think that they have been successful in helping Russia understand that if Russia was going to get anything, they were going to fight and have great losses.
0: Yeah, Right. Correct. And, you know, there's a second question that I had in this one. And Before I move on, I do actually because the second question I had asked was how much of a difference has aid from Western countries made? And I actually think it's worth briefly hitting that because, you know, we seem to talk about tanks. Yeah. Where we're going to be giving them, where at first, be, you know, if you look back at the last February, well, we're not going to give them tanks. And then we say, well, we are going to give them tanks.
1: Right. But
0: I, I think, you know, it's worth talking about this briefly because the tank discussion was very frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. Because the tank has a, the, the tank has a very obvious counter
1: mm-hmm. and it's the minefield. Right. Right. Minefields
0: are not meant for people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're meant to stop tank advances. Right. And right. so Russia has already it is known how to slow down tank advances.
1: Mm-hmm. That's why
0: Russia laid minefields. And if you've seen the recent reporting, Ukraine has to go out very slowly mm-hmm. with minefield teams
1: yeah. and right.
0: sweeping mines, which slows down their advance and makes the tanks we're giving them. They're much less useful against fortified defenses. That's the purpose of the minefield.
1: But I think the discussion is really
0: not helping, but it means this is old technology and the counter to that is already well known.
1: But I think it's more about optics and it's also about the politics of weaponry. Let's just be honest. The United States is in the business of selling war machines to foreign countries. We make a lot of money at it we set up these funding financing programs yep. that help people buy our weaponry. And so, yep. um, uh, as horrible as it sounds, there's some big business taking place right worst now. Worst yeah, there's, there's, there's that side of it. Um, the other side of it is will it help advance the cause of the ukrainians will it help them to win the war and that's a very valid point but i think there's some people who are ultimately dedicated to simply one side or the other uh as far as uh, whether or not it our our aid has helped them i think that it has made an impact i do not think that they've been a- they would have been able to withstand uh the attacks from russia without the aid that they received Uh, from us, also others, but a lot of it from us. And I I think that that's worth mentioning because that that to me sets up, it's not just our business in war, like what is our position now?
0: Right, right. And that takes us to the second question, right? So what is our position? Um, As you and I, you know, we have said this is a proxy war where we are very clearly supporting one side. And we may not call it a proxy war because we don't want to say we're at war with Russia, but
1: right. All semantics really. But
0: this is all semantics, right?
1: Right.
0: And one of the issues in a proxy war is there's a strategic misalignment between what does the arms provider want and what does the person doing the fighting dying want. They're not always aligned in their goals. And so I think we see this playing out in Ukraine. And I think this is always a predictable problem that never We just never talked about it. Ukraine, rightfully, wants to regain all of what they lost, including Crimea. They also want some more long term protection, whether that's uh, NATO. Right. They want to be admitted to these things. They want long term. Right. Right. But does the U.S. want that? Do we want to support their efforts? Because. If the areas that Russia has taken now are fortified, Crimea is much more so. And reconquering Crimea would be a Herculean effort. So, but we get to this issue, because this is the question, does the U.S. have clear strategic objectives with our support, or are we just sort of, is this just open-ended, an open-ended check, just a blank check and open-ended
1: support. You know what? I, I I don't know if we can really have a true sense of what the strategic objectives are for the United States moving forward are. Um, we haven't been a fly on a wall in that room. However, it can be lightly assumed that if we're getting involved in the weaponry supply portion of a war, that we have some idea of where we want things to land. You know, we have some, this isn't just throwing money at a thing. The United States is not going to throw money at a thing like this. There, there's a strategic positioning, I think that we might want to win. Um, Also, I, the, the reason why I also say that is because we have been loosey goosey with our citizens and even active military personnel, literally fighting in this war we say that there're going to be consequences but at least 7000 Americans yeah. have applied without hindrance from the United States have yeah. applied to be on the ground that is a noteworthy fighting force yeah. to have 7000 yeah. fighters on the ground yeah. from the United States so tanks guns fighters which are right. the traditional weapons of war right. are all yep in Ukraine. So with all of that, I would have to assume that there are some strategic objectives that we're going to want to, uh, uh, that we have some clear strategic objectives moving forward. Whether or not we achieve those remains to be seen, but I do not think that we have an open-ended relationship, cash book, you know, checkbook open relationship with Ukraine. We want something out of this.
0: Yeah. Well, then um, let me ask you a follow-up question then. Obviously, I know secrecy and, you know, they, they don't want to say too much. I get that. Mm-hmm. But if we have an objective, do we have an obligation? Is there an obligation to inform the public of what our objective is?
1: Not because during if they wartime, one, they're not, not, not during wartime. Because you don't want to give up your strategic advantage. Right. right? So right. is, you know... We are not a country technically at war, so right. that can that point can be argued. So we say things like this: we want Ukraine to be victorious and restoring their homeland for their people. But we're yeah. not going to say that we want Ukraine to restore their economic centers for our investment. That right. we uh, all of these investments in Ukraine, we want to be paid back. Plus, <laughs> you know, it's important right. that they're solvent. And and they are a standing country so that they can uh, walk forward with us in this way. We're not going to say that part. We're going to say the cherry on top part. And that is right. we want Ukraine to come out of this being, uh, you know, Ukraine. Um, right. And and but in when it's wartime, there is no obligation to share with the public because the public is not a part of the chain of command. You can't control the messaging. And you don't want your opponents to get the message. No, they already know. Everybody I mean, yeah. knows. It's not a secret. Yeah. But you yeah. don't come out and just say it.
0: Then how is the public supposed to respond to it? I mean, this is, a, you know, none of this was sort of in our question, but I do wonder how is the public supposed to respond to uh, continuing investment and efforts to support the war, to engage in a proxy war? Without anybody telling them why we're doing it or what we want to get out of it. I mean, for the public, that is a bit of a. I think that I, I think your answer is correct. I also think it's a bit problematic for the public.
1: I think the public can respond in the only way that they can. They can vote people out. They can vote against agendas. They can That's true. listen, you know, they we we still voters still have power on the ground here in the in the country. So they can make a list of all of those people who voted for funding. And some people have already started this. They're already, yeah. they're already anti, not and anti, maybe anti-Ukraine is too strong, but anti-funding yeah. for ukraine yeah. and there are initiatives to basically you know not quite the mccarthyism uh type of list but making right. a list of people who supported kind of the the thing you brought up earlier to some people an open-ended relationship right. to support this war uh, right. and then there are some people who just clearly agree with russia you yeah. know and yeah, they've, made no, no, they've made no they made no secret about it. So, um, yeah, I, I think the best way and the really the only way that we can respond, yeah, we can go protest in the street, but show up and vote. Vote people yeah. in or out based on whether or not you support yeah. our funding choices yeah. for Ukraine.
0: Okay, and so then, um, is there a red line for our support? And by that, I mean, is there something that Ukraine could ask for that mm-hmm. we would just... Refuse flat out. And I ask this because if you've paid attention in the beginning of the war, we had said, Well, tanks are not really gonna happen. And then tanks happen. And we said, Well, we're definitely not gonna do jets. And now we are approaching ever closer to the jets. We just right. and if you had asked me, and I think the 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 one that really got me, if you had asked, would we ever provide cluster munitions? right that's no way in hell and and as opposed to tanks and jets Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the cluster munitions really got me because the way that those are used historically Mm -hmm. civilians die right right as people you know may not know cluster munitions don't always go off successfully there are a percentage of duds and sometimes they land in a wet riverbed they land in a muddy field, especially the sort of field has been torn apart by tanks and mines. Residential it's just areas, and, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're, and they don't go off. And then somewhere down the road, some civilian, some kid, some farmer is plowing his land. Some kid is playing and step on a mine. They step on a cluster, and you know they're dead. They them. so, so right. you can try to say, don't use them in this area. But hey, this is war. We're going to use them where we think we need them, and if that happens to be an area that'll be occupied 10 years from now then I don't know we'll sort it out.
1: Mm-hmm. These
0: are dangerous weapons that some countries refuse to use and outlaw.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: For the reasons I stated. And if we're willing to cross that line, I think it raises the question where is the line? I um, was really
1: surprised when I heard that cluster yeah. ammunition was, was being sent over. I thought that was the line. <laughs> Personally, yes. I thought that was the line because of not just the using them during active war, but I don't know of a true whatever a successful cleanup looks like. There's usually loss of limb or life yeah. and uh, putting people at risk far after the engagement is done uh, seems to me like a pretty horrible thing uh, to have to deal with. Uh, but it I, perhaps it shows some level of desperation that this would be yeah. requested or given. Now, so as far as your question, a red line for support, I think right now, the red line of support that I think I'm reading is anything that may interfere with our ability to negotiate for the release of prisoners in Russia. Okay. And um, this is something that some people who are particularly against overfunding Ukraine have said a red line should be. Now, granted, there is no agreement on the red line, but um, it we should consider how it affects our ability to negotiate when we yeah. are uh, supplying their active enemy with things to kill their citizens with or right. their fighters with, wherever they get these right. folks to fight. So. I, I think right now it's it's in that space, but we'll have to see. It's it's hard to tell because see. like you said, the line keeps moving. I was surprised at the yes. tanks and then the jets and now these cluster munitions and
0: yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the line keeps moving and the war is not coming to it to an end. Most
1: and the longer it lasts, it probably will continue to move.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, it will continue to move. Um this one will come up again. I would not be surprised to see a circle back to this next year because most people think the war is moving into next year, which means it's an election topic. Um, So it'll probably come up then and we'll, we'll talk about it again and the world will have changed once again. So, you know, that's so uh, uh, that is our show. Thank you for joining me, Francine on the (laughs) re-record.
1: What technical difficulties. Thank you
0: to the NSA for not (laughs) shutting this one down. Uh, I really appreciate you guys. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate, casual,
1: your, you appreciate know? your listening, though.
0: I appreciate your listener, <laughs> you
1: know, everything else.
0: Um, <laughs> NSA years count too.
1: yeah. There you go, as
0: always. <laughs>
1: I want to thank
0: you all and encourage you, the audience, to continue the discussion on Facebook and Instagram. Like all of our shows here, this podcast is brought to you in part by Eliag Productions a studio for podcasters and musicians and Pointcast news to listen to our podcast or read our articles. You can visit our website at pointcast.news or subscribe to our feed on Apple podcast. Be sure to like, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and
1: X, X.
0: And make sure to join us
1: (laughs) next time. (laughs)